the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 21, Episode 13. Prime Minister Modi's trip to Washington. A game changer or business as usual? Talking to Seema Sirohi, columnist for the Economic Times, India's largest business daily. Prime Minister Modi's three-day state visit to Washington was a whirlwind of meetings with President Biden, addressing a joint session of Congress, a business investment jamboree at the Kennedy Center, and a slew of new agreements between the United States and India. Did his trip really mark a sea change in relations, as National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan implied when he called it, quote, a hinge moment in geopolitics, unquote? Indo-American relations have waxed and waned over the last 36 years. So is this trip a turning point? With us today to discuss the trip is Seema Sirohi, Washington-based journalist focused on covering U.S.-India relations. She joins us from her office in Washington, D.C. She is also the author of Friends with Benefits, The India-U.S. Story. Hello, Seema, and welcome to the show. Thank you, and hello. Well, Seema, please take a moment to tell us about yourself. So I came to the U.S. first as a student. I've grown up in India pretty much, and I came here for a master's in journalism. I went back to India, started working, and then I came here again in 1988 because for personal reasons, I got married to an American. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And then I have been here off and on. For so many years, like it's almost three decades. Mm -hmm. And the book kind of traces the relationship over this period, the U.S.-India relationship. Well, I'll look forward to reviewing that book with you when we come back in August. You're going to send me a copy of the book, and then we'll do a, a review of the book so our listeners can hear the whole story of Friends with Benefits, the U.S. India story. So that's very exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Seema, you've covered other U.S.-Indian summits over the years. How did the Modi-Biden meeting stack up? Okay. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, it was a hugely significant visit. And I think even though the American side may sound like they had exaggerated the importance, they hadn't. Uh, What has come out of the visit is a very hefty joint statement about the two countries coming together in almost every domain. Mm -hmm. President Biden said the relationship now spans from the skies to this, from space to the seas. Mm -hmm. And truly, it is, it is true in that sense. It's very path breaking. The two countries have agreed to do a lot of things together, things that the U.S. was unwilling to do in the past. So I can give you a couple of examples. Yes, if you would. 
Yeah, so one of the major agreements struck during this visit was a deal between General Electric and an Indian public sector company called Hindustan Aeronautics Limited mm-hmm. to jointly produce military jet engines mm. and an agreement for GE to transfer up to 80% of the technology. This is a huge deal because only three other countries have jet engine technology besides the US. Mm-hmm. It's France, UK and Russia. Mm-hmm. And India has been struggling to make its own engine for a while because it's so sophisticated this technology involves a lot of very sophisticated metallurgy. India hasn't been able to master it. So this should be a very big uh, it's a very big step forward. Mm-hmm. As a result of that, and of course, does the United States have other similar agreements with other countries or is this a unique agreement between the US and India? I think the US has given technology to its uh, very close allies in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, so another thing to remember is India is not a treaty ally of the United States, right? Mm-hmm. India is not part of NATO, India is not part of any of the alliance structures that have existed since World War II. India is kind of, shall I say, free agent, if you will. Mm-hmm. It called itself non-aligned for a very long time after it became independent. Mm-hmm. And now it believes in a multipolar world, but there is enough convergence of interests between India and the United States that the two countries are coming closer together almost every day. And another very important aspect of this visit was the emphasis by both President Biden and Prime Minister Modi on the people-to-people connection. Mm-hmm. See, there are 4 million Indian Americans in the U.S. now. They kind of form the backbone. That kind of relationship doesn't exist, let's say, between India and Russia, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. It's a very different kind of relationship. Well, of course, India, Russia, and China all share that expansive Eurasian landmass. And it's perfectly understandable that India, given these two huge neighbors, Russia and China, that they're going to have relationships with both of those countries. And it's it's perfectly understandable that those relationships are going to be managed to the nth degree. But it's interesting to note that India is the largest democracy in the world, number one. And number two, it's also a beacon, if you will, for democratic values throughout Asia. As the United States looks at its its allies throughout Asia, South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, well, let me take back Thailand, perhaps, Australia, all of those, Taiwan, all of those countries are democracies. And it's only natural that given India's democratic tradition and values, that we come closer together. And the only regret that I have is that it's taken, <laughs> it's taken so many decades for both sides to, to come as close together as they appear to have come close together during Modi's visit. 
Well, there are very important sort of pragmatic reasons for why it didn't happen before. Because U.S. interests in South Asia were of a very different nature over the past few decades. U.S. was friends with Pakistan. The U.S. actually, I would argue, helped the rise of China mm-hmm. by selling technology to China. Now, everything is different. Right. Because China under Xi Jinping is deemed as a rival by the United States, Mm -hmm. almost like a peer competitor, where the U.S. feels that it needs other partners in Asia. And the only country that comes to mind that's large enough with the kind of industrial base, with the kind of population, with the kind of economy is India. So. I would say it's geopolitics that brings them together more if one had to be brutally honest. Because democracy has existed in India since we became independent in 1947. Mm-hmm. We became independent. Yet, uh, the closer partner for the US was Pakistan, which has had a very choppy relationship with the democracy. Well, you know, it's interesting. Let's come back to the security issue. You mentioned that India has been non-aligned for the longest time. Of course, I remember when Prime Minister Nehru was uh, was with us, he was a big champion of the non-aligned movement, and that, that non-alignment continued for many decades after his, uh, his passing. In looking at the Quad, for instance, the Quad, of course, I don't know if you would call it a military alliance, but it's a coming together of Japan, Australia, the United States, and India to provide security overview, if you will, in the Indian Ocean sphere. So would you call the Quad a security alliance or it's something less than that? It is not at all a security alliance. In fact, India goes out of its way to emphasize that and the U.S. has also made it very clear it's not because if it were labeled a security alliance or if it were a security alliance, it would really get China's backup. Right. It would not lead to anything good. So what Quad does is to build a build like a lattice work, what Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, has called a lattice work of partners and friends who want to show the rest of the world that democracies can deliver. So what has happened, let's say, over the past five, six years, China launched this Belt and Road Initiative, Mm -hmm. right? It is the biggest geopolitical play by China in which it has gone to every country and said, we will do this for you. We'll build bridges and roads and this and that. In the process, several countries are reeling under a huge debt burden. Mm -hmm. But they wanted infrastructure, so they're kind of stuck. So the Quad is trying to say that, look, we will finance infrastructure. We'll bring the private sector. We will make the vaccines, the pandemic, during the COVID situation, we saw that happening. We will give scholarships. We will do, uh, you know, create business opportunities. So that's what it does more. There is another side 
to if uh, informally you want to think about it as a security wing mm-hmm. is the malabar exercises that these four countries do india japan australia and the us and that you could say is one way these four countries are exercising in that region in the indo-pacific region and sort of sending a different kind of signal look we are in it together now helping each other build up all the surveillance possibilities and capabilities so that's that's what's happening in the quad mhm let's move on to the enormous impact that indian americans have had on the american economy american institutions, education, medical, etc. You mentioned that there are 4 million Indian Americans, which is a very impressive number. For instance, here in the Bay Area, we have a very significant Indian American population, principally concentrated around the Silicon Valley area. As you may know, San Francisco and Bangalore are sister cities. I serve as co-chair of that sister city relationship. It was set up by Gavin Newsom when he was the mayor of San Francisco, currently the governor. He saw that Bangalore was probably the most important strategic partner for San Francisco and the Silicon Valley that we could have in India. So those links, particularly here in the Bay Area, are very deep, very broad, very strong. We've been, we we see many Indian Americans who are in positions of leadership, founding companies, founding new startups in Silicon Valley, and of course, uh, for the more established companies, uh, playing roles in senior management and leadership roles also. So the Indian American community has really been enormously successful, made fantastic contributions, and just continues to do so. And when you consider the population, the Indian American population in the United States, well, historically, we've we've always had an Indian American population, but it was relatively small. But it's been primarily over the last 50 years, would you say, Seema, that we've seen this burgeoning of the uh, Indian American population to a point where we have five members of the U.S. Congress who are Indian American. So whether it's politics, whether it's academia, whether it's high tech, whether it's the medical field, the Indian American community here in the United States is really punching above its weight, and particularly here in in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Most of the... highly educated Indians came after the immigration reform of, I think it was 1962 in the U.S. Then there was another big wave in the around the late 1990s as this whole computer IT revolution happened. And in the year 2000, if you remember, there was this Y2K problem and a lot of computer engineers were needed and there was this whole outsourcing began and uh, there began this back and forth between the two countries. And today you're right. So many big companies in the U.S. are headed by Indian Americans, uh, Google and Microsoft. And even in this visit by Prime Minister Modi, 
couple of very important technology agreements took place. Um, there is this company called Micron uh, that mm-hmm. has signed a deal to invest up to $800 million in India, in the Indian state of Gujarat, uh, build a packaging and assembly plant for semiconductors. Mm-hmm. Another one called Applied Materials is doing is going to build an engineering center. It's also a California-based company. Also, uh, the CEO is, uh, the president is an Indian-American, or at least the name sounded so. Mm-hmm. They are going to build this uh, engineering center where they're going to bring top researchers, top academic institutions, and to collaborate on sort of building the talent for the future. So that's how I would say uh, what happened in this visit. America and India are looking at the future now. Mm-hmm. It's no longer about, okay, uh, fighting wars or geopolitics as we understand it uh, in a very traditional sense. It is about geopolitics. It is about China and to some extent. But it's also about uh, putting your eyes to the te- cutting-edge technologies of the future, artificial intelligence, quantum, high-performance computing, and so many other areas, which I don't even understand very well. But they've signed this whole, uh, you know, lot of agreements on that. And I would recommend everybody to read the joint statement. It's on the White House website. It'll really give you a sense of how wide and broad the relationship has become. I remember when I first came here, it was so different. Mm -hmm. If you told me then that in the year 2023, we are going to do X, Y, and Z, I would have laughed. I would have said, no way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's interesting talking about U.S. investment in India. You mentioned Micron and setting up a chip company there, an $800 million investment. Of course, as a result of COVID and also as a result of China now being perceived as a rival, as a competitor of the United States, the United States has become a little more circumspect as regards sharing sensitive high technology with China and in particular chips, there's also this phenomenon now of friendshoring, where we, if we are going to have overseas manufacturing facilities for U.S.-created technology, it's going to be with countries and systems that are more friendly towards our system, our values, and our democratic values in particular. So that friendshoring, I'm looking at the Micron example as part of that friendshoring policy. Additionally, we saw Tim Cook in, within the last couple of months announcing a huge expansion in India. And of course, you know, when we look at the population of India, the median age in India, I believe, is 28. Whereas the United States and China are respectively, our median ages are 38, a full 10 years more. So India has this very young, youthful population, which is just in the early stages of creating its own wealth, of achieving of achieving its professional ambitions, all of these young people. So when I saw that Tim Cook 
was looking to expand Apple's footprint and investment and manufacturing capabilities in India, that to me also was a major signal that that times have changed and that India is hopefully India is going to be going to continue enjoying those annual growth rates and GDP of 6%. Right. So uh, COVID showed everybody that it doesn't do anyone any good to have just one factory in the world, Mm -hmm. to have many, many more. So the idea is to build uh, resilient and diversified supply chains. Because when people were suffering under COVID, there was a shortage of semiconductors, right? Even every industry was affected because so many of the things were coming from China. So the idea is, yes, French shoring is one. The other is de-risking. That's another term I hear in Washington. Another term I hear is you build supply chains with trusted partners. Mm -hmm. So people that have worked together before, two countries have worked together before, they know each other, the value system, the open system. And you can actually go to the courts if you don't like something. If a company, something happens, the company has a legal recourse in India, Mm -hmm. for example. That in China was quite a problem, right? This is the way of the future. And I was struck by the fact that how quickly everything moved over this past one year. There was a time, I mean, when President Biden took over, there was some amount of doubt in India, in New Delhi, that whether he would continue with the policies of the Quad and expanding, I mean, uh, strengthening the Quad, and whether he would continue with the Indo-Pacific policy that actually was launched by the former president, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So all those doubts were removed. President Biden did everything to build on that and then some. And he put a kind of a method into the madness that was happening before. (laughs) If everything comes to fruition, what is promised, then I would say India and the US are doing everything short of being formal allies. It's very interesting. At a distance, there appears to be very good chemistry between Modi and Biden. I don't know if you if you noticed that, but that, that was certainly my perception. Again, at a distance, you were up close and personal, I guess, and uh, during some of those encounters between the two leaders. But is that your impression? I mean, do they, they seem to have a, a good personal chemistry? Absolutely. They met on all three days. Imagine that. He came on a Wednesday. They had a private dinner at the White House on Wednesday night. Then Thursday was the official state uh, visit with many elements, you know, the welcome ceremony where they, you know, were patting each other on the back, hugging (laughs) and all that. Even the first lady was holding Modi's hand, you know, at one stage. We Uh could see that. Then same thing, you know, that night at the state dinner. So, yes, there is a personal chemistry. They have met so many times over the years. First, when Biden was vice president, and then since becoming president, they and 
particularly this year they've had so many meetings they met at the G7 and they will meet again in September when the president goes to India for the G20 summit so yes there is a personal chemistry and i would like to say that i see president biden as a consummate politician and modi is one too uh, so when biden was senator and in the senate foreign relations committee he would he told president clinton when clinton had imposed sanctions on india there was a time when india was under us sanctions by the way just for your listeners mm-hmm. for perspective so because india had conducted nuclear tests and we came under sanctions biden was one of the few democratic senators to say that look india is too large a country to be treated like that you have to uh, try to understand why india conducted those tests because it was primarily because of china and to show capability to china so he has built on that and now that he is president he is sort of implementing that the two democracies have to be stronger friends mm-hmm. how did the public back home in india and the indian media cover the visit Uh, carpet coverage i mean wall to wall it was the big story although here the mainstream media emphasized a certain aspect of the visit the questions the critics were raising about the state of indian democracy itself right mm-hmm. under prime minister modi many many people have said that there's a democratic backsliding so the new york times washington post and other major newspapers were focused on that there were editorials and opinion pieces and all that in india the focus was more about how strong the partnership has become and how important this state visit was on the content so if i may say something i thought the american media ignored the content or the substance of the visit mm-hmm. in favor of that one aspect of the visit and yes there is enough to criticize in india i'm not saying that everything is going hunky dory but to ignore the <laughs> the entire visit in order to focus on the democracy issues was also not good journalism i thought I would agree and at the end of the day India has successfully managed democracy since 1947 the most populous now the most populous country in the world and I think some of our friends in the journalist world need to be more focused on how full the cup is as opposed to wanting you know wishing to see see something different But Seema in the remaining few moments of the podcast do you have some closing thoughts for our listeners because I tend to agree with Jake Sullivan when he characterized the me- the meeting and this moment between India and the United States as being a hinge in geopolitics what are your closing thoughts now going forward as a result of this meeting and how relations between india and the united states will blossom 
So I would say I would emphasize implementation. If what's been promised, all the agreements that have been signed, to implement them promptly and to send a strong signal to both bureaucracies to get on with the work, because we are indeed at an inflection moment. Other countries are not waiting for India and uh, the U.S. to get their act together, right? Xi Jinping has already done a lot of work. And democracies are kind of catching up if they are to be a counter to that kind of system. And as one American official told my colleague, we've got to move fast or we, our grandchildren will be, you know, speaking, uh, you know, living under Xi Jinping or something, <laughs> something like that. And that is true, that democracies have to get their act together and do things faster, perhaps, and focus on the prize. The good part is that there's bipartisan support in the U.S. Congress, which doesn't agree on very much these days, for the India relationship. Both Republicans and Democrats want the relationship to be stronger. Mm-hmm. Even the critics of Modi uh, want that. So that's a very, very uh, significant thing to mark. So I just hope... Um, things go from strength to strength and i hope they will i will be watching as should you yes well very definitely once again uh, i want to thank you seema for joining us today and how can our listeners follow you well i'm on twitter my handle is at seema sirohi my work doesn't leave me very much time to be on other social media like instagram and things and I just don't have the energy now <laughs> to learn more new technology and more new things. But I am on Twitter because I find it uh, a very, very useful platform for ideas and journalists in general to sort of read each other's columns and stories. And I'll just repeat that Twitter handle. It's at Seema, S-E-E-M-A, Sirohi, S-I-R-O-H-I. Is that correct, Seema? Correct. Very good. And once again, Seema, looking forward to having you back here on the San Francisco Experience podcast during the month of August to review your book, Friends with Benefits, The India-U.S. Story. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you and my good wishes to your listeners. Well, thanks once again, Seema, and look forward to having you back in August. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 418. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, 19 platforms in total, and also with a listener base spanning 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. 